Welcome to the Vita Voices Power to Empower podcast series, where we're speaking with women leaders from around the world about their bold ideas, their courageous leadership, and their thoughts on the way forward. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Elise Nelson. This week, the United States celebrates Juneteenth. Juneteenth, known as Freedom Day, Jubilee Day, Cell Liberation Day, honors the anniversary of Union General Gordon Granger reading out the federal order of the Emancipation Proclamation in Galveston, Texas, officially informing everyone that all enslaved Black people were now free. And to mark this day and really celebrate, I'm honored and really excited to be joined by a Vital Voices Network member, founder, social impact strategist, organizer, facilitator, and I have to say one of my personal mentors, Cece Battle. Cece is a champion of diverse voices in the youth leadership movement and the women's movement. She's worked across the globe, developing leaders out of the shadows and elevating and highlighting powerful voices from every corner of the world. She's deeply passionate about civil rights issues of our time, committed to fighting boldly for young people, women, and underserved wherever she goes. Cece, it's always a pleasure. I'm so excited. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Elise. Thank Aww. you. So as I mentioned, of course, this week in the United States, we're celebrating Juneteenth. Can you just share a little bit about the significance of June 19th? Yes. So, you know, everyone can do a quick Google if you want, but I'm going to speak to it from a personal perspective. Um, you gave a great overview in the beginning. This basically marks the point in which all folks, particularly folks of the African diaspora who were enslaved in the US, the last folks in Galveston, Texas were notified that you know, they were quote unquote free. It's important to note a couple of things that aren't often talked about. One, this was two and a half years after Lincoln gave the, the wrote the, the Emancipation Proclamation, and it was two months after Robert Lee, the last quote unquote federal Confederate soldier, um, surrendered. And what this day marks for Black folks, especially in the U.S., is that wow. Um, two and a half years after this document was, was written, we, as, as all of us, not just some of us, were granted freedom legally in this country. It's important to note there are some people who says that this officially marks the end of slavery, but this marks the end of chattel slavery. We can talk, and I hope that we'll talk about this a little later, there's slavery that's still happening in this country with Black folks, with Indigenous folks, and in different systems of oppression here in the States. But this particular holiday connotes the time where chattel slavery um, was forbidden by law in the United States. So much, of course, of, of the history of African Americans is whitewashed or erased from many of our school books. And the story of Juneteenth is unfortunately not an exception. Juneteenth isn't a national holiday yet. Can you speak to why you think that is? Yeah, I mean, there's <laughs> this, I was, let me back up. For folks who don't know, I'm from Miami, Florida. I live technically in DC, but I bounce between Miami and DC. 
my mom is still here in South Florida and I just talked to her and I was asking her about Juneteenth. And I was like, you know, I don't really remember um, celebrating Juneteenth with you, mommy. And she's like, well, oh yeah, you weren't around when we used to celebrate it. Fun fact, my mom had me at 38. Um, my eldest sister is 19 years older than me. So she always jokes that, you know, she had a whole, you know, three lives before I came around. Um, when I think about the frustration that I feel that it's not a, a, a federal holiday, I also think about so many other things that are not um, memorialized federally. For, for instance, we don't have an anti-lynching bill federally. We do not have any type of acknowledgement of the transatlantic slave trade. And this is just another example of the US on a federal level, unwillingness to really um, honor real history and really face you know what this country has done is doing it, it brings a lot of thoughts i know that some folks if you're you know tapped in a little bit to the news you hear a lot about um, states banning critical race theory um, my home state of florida governor DeSantis basically you know said that understanding and and, and having conversations about race is illegal um, in schools, which is wild. And that same wow. type of ideology is the reason why you see something as quintessential of American history like Juneteenth not being celebrated federally. It is important to note, however, that most states um, do have them as state holidays. Florida has it as a state holiday. Texas, I think it was two years ago, um, made it a, a, a state holiday, but it isn't federal, federally recognized, federally recognized. And I think it's it's a pain point for everyone. And what I often ask when I'm you know, having these conversations is, what does that say about this country? That you know, the folks who were forcibly brought here, who were forced to work for hundreds of years, who were finally quote unquote legally liberated and the country that enslaved them refused to acknowledge as their freedom. Um, I think it's a lot to do with shame and to be honest, just an unwillingness to deal with that ugly history that still manifests to this day. Obviously, if we think about Juneteenth um, 2020 on the heels of um, you know, this terrible murder of George Floyd, um, really the outrage um, that was going on across this country and quite frankly, around the world, um, protests, marches. What do you think has happened as you reflect on this past year from Juneteenth 2020 to 2021 with everything else, I mean, the backdrop of everything else that's been going on with the pandemic and the economic downturn, um, growing hate crimes. How, when you reflect on this past year, mm -hmm. what are you thinking about? Oh, that's such a, a, a beautifully big question. There's so much that um, goes through my mind. I know for me, I'm in a space of really unapologetically continuing to step into my own truth and, and my Blackness. And from my experience, people that I'm in community with, people on the interwebs are doing the same. And it feels different. It genuinely feels different. The type of energy and air that folks have a, have around Juneteenth this year feels, it feels more, I don't want to use the word as light as festive, but it feels more important because to my point earlier, 
if you refuse to acknowledge history, how can you really celebrate, you know, the future? How can you really celebrate where we are now? I think what last year showed us is that no matter how much we try to assage or cover up or find the politically correct language to talk about what happened, happened injustices are still happening. I mean, to the point that you made, I mean, it's not just hate crimes, it's police violence, it's lack of, you know, clean water and food insecurity and, you know, a pandemic. <laughs> There's so much that has happened that has directly affected Black life. I think folks are really at a place of trying to step into a little bit of joy that, that we can by celebrating the resilience and, and the way that our ancestors persevered through things that we could only imagine. And I, and I know for me, this year I'm hosting something at my home down here and it's all about joy. It's all about celebration. It's all about, you know, really taking time to honor what we've been able to overcome as individuals, but particularly as a collective people. So I'm just in a state of reflection and gratitude, but also real clarity that in order for us to really move forward or to really step into all that we can, can be as folks who are in this country, we really have to do the work of understanding the history, even the, even the ugly parts. So of course, um, this commemoration, as you say, joy is coming on the heels of the 100 year anniversary of the massacre uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And with this 100 years, I thought it was really interesting to learn that I think it was the first time an American president actually went and visited the area and actually addressed African-American communities there and said, you know, this will be known. This will be known in full view. Was that a step forward? I mean, in my mind, it was a bit shocking that like, really? This is the first time an American president, but at the same time, I don't remember learning about it in the history books growing up in school. It was something that I came to learn later in life, right? And probably because I'm interested and curious, you know, not because it was taught to me in school, it was never taught to me in school. Right. I think it's a step forward, but there's more steps that are critical. And I'll give you this example. All of us are a part of different things, organizations, you know, communities, who you know, have released a statement about pride or have released a statement about Black Lives Matter of some sort. And though that is great, though that acknowledgement is, is great, in my opinion, what's more important is atonement for <laughs> those crimes, is, is um, for those communities to be made whole. If we think about Tulsa, there are still descendants or people who live that massacre who are still alive. If we look at the population of Tulsa, particularly the black population, the social economic status, access, food insecurity, water, all the things that I talked about, that community is still plagued because of that atrocity. And what I would like to see is where are the reparations for the folks who are, who are from Tulsa who not only had to endure that, 
but still had to thrive in spite of that. And so, yes, it's a great step forward, but there's so much more to be done. I, where we are, where I am as Black folks is, yes, acknowledge. That's great. You know, we knew it happened, but we want to be made whole. And what comes up for me, especially as we're celebrating Juneteenth, it's that same premise. You know, where are reparations for folks who are, were, who are the descendants of the folks who were enslaved in this country, but particularly built this country? When we think about our economic system, when we think about capitalism, when we think about all of these institutions and the infrastructure, the infrastructure of all of the things that allow for you know, people to be great in this country are on the backs of Black folks and on the backs of Indigenous folks. Um, so yes, it's a great step forward. That's cool. But what I would love for us to get to a place is of atonement and for communities, for my communities to be made whole. So I remember during the, um, the early days of the administration, maybe even before um, President Biden and Vice President uh, Harris were sworn in, there was talk of a like a reconciliation, truth and reconciliation commission similar to South Africa. What is the latest on that? Do you know? You know, it's still in talks. It's still in the works. And I'm so tired of commissions. <laughs> we know what <laughs> happened, okay? It reminds me of like so many jobs that I've had and you know, something, some harm was caused and it was like, we're gonna create a task force. So we're gonna create a task force to talk about something that we know that happened, to talk about the harm that we know that was caused. Mm -hmm. That to me feels like performance, performative solidarity. Mm. Why do we need to meet about the harm? Let's do something to address the harm, right? So yes, there's, there's peace reconciliation commissions all over the world. A good friend of mine leads the one in Amsterdam. And, you know, they were one of the first countries to release a, a whole statement explaining, you know, and apologizing for their participation in the transatlantic slave trade. Awesome. And where's the money? <laughs> and where's the housing? And where's the resources? It's great to, you know, to uh, assage morals and say, oh, we did such a good job. We said this was wrong. And, you know, our ancestors did something really wrong. Okay, if you know that it's wrong, how can we make those communities whole? So, why, yeah. do you, why do you think that the issue of, of reparations remains so highly controversial? I mean, oh. it's so... <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what do you mean? Okay, so in order for reparations to happen, yes, there has to be an acknowledgement but not a generalization of acknowledgement. It's like, oh, the US did this. There has to be a reckoning of people, communities, how, how certain people, communities benefited on the backs of certain people. And then once that's really you know, laid to bear, then the question is, okay, well, how are we going to make this right? And I know for sure what people are, are scared about is, am I gonna have to give up some of my resources? Am I going to have to give up some of my power? Am I going to have to acknowledge that I benefit from something so horrible? I do think there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of shame, but more importantly, there's, there's a fear of losing power. 
There's a fear of losing resources. When you've been conditioned to your point earlier that, you know, there's a lot of things you didn't learn about in school. There's a lot of things that I didn't learn about in school. There's a lot of things that most folks don't learn about in school. So if you've been socialized your whole life to believe that what you have, you deserved it and you've earned it, it is a very difficult pill to swallow, not only to learn the truth about who actually built it, who actually, you know, quote unquote, put in the work to build this thing and how your wealth or privilege is actually not only historically at the expense of certain communities, but is currently at the expense of certain communities. So the reparations is, is sensitive because it's not just historical reckoning, it's present day reckoning. And folks don't wanna do that. Do you think that things in that, in this area of reckoning, mm-hmm. do you think that things are getting worse or better? Right. I mean, particularly coming off the heels of all of what's happened in the last year, are there, do you think more people are open to it? Or do you mm-hmm. think people are digging in their heels more because of the fear yeah. of, of the power of what we have seen? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a little bit of both. I, as you said earlier, you know, I work with different organizations and people and supporting them, not only on their personal journeys, but as they're trying to make their organizations more equitable. And I've seen serious shifts in organizations, absolutely. But most more important, I've seen serious shifts in individuals. And I haven't seen policy changes. And I haven't seen resources moved. So though culturally, I think our society is becoming a bit more aware because of social media and people having access to tell their own stories, you know, the Googles, uh, honestly, the pandemic and folks being forced to, most folks being forced to be at home and, and, and sit still and actually grapple with some of the things that are happening more so than, you know, just moving on to the next. So I do think that there are some shifts there, but in terms of the material conditions for folks who have been impacted, there hasn't been any change. If we think about how many folks are being incarcerated, if we think about how many folks are being, you know, uh, harassed and killed by the police, if we think about the how hate crimes are rising, if we think about gun violence, those things have not shifted. The material conditions of people who have been marginalized in this country, particularly those who are Black, the situations hasn't changed. So though it's great that societal conversations or personal feelings are starting to change. What I'm excited for us to move to quickly is, is seeing some legislative change to see, you know, organizations' policies change, to see a, you know, redistribution of resources and access. That is where you'll hear me get excited. But there has been progress nonetheless. So you started your work very much working with um, with organizations um, and movements, and and continue to. But more recently, you've you've delved in deeper to working with uh, working with corporations, working with a number of very senior leaders um, across some of the. Made, I know we 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 will not maybe not mention who, but I happen to know some very significant leaders that that you work with, um, and. Tell me why you decide to take this approach, because I, knowing you, I know that you are deeply strategic and always <laughs> about, you know, 
how, how can I have the, the, the greatest impact, um, do the greatest service? Where, where do I need to plug in? And you've been very effective um, at doing that. But, but why did you decide to focus there rather than you just, I mean, I realize you haven't stepped away from any of the activism and movement building, you're still doing that. But, you know, obviously one only has so much time in the day. I realize you, you know, <laughs> your your day may look different than others, but to explain why you wanted to really focus there. You know, the thing about change and the thing about time and growth is that your ministry changes. Um, I'm speaking in church terms because my father's a pastor. Um, the things that you can not only do well, but that you can do effectively may shift over time. So there was a point in my life where, you know, I was the frontline organizer, the frontline activist. Then there was a time where, you know, I ran a nonprofit. I was building programs a little bit more stepped away where I supported folks who were on the front line. And now my role has been more about strategy and coaching. And that's because one, it's important to me to make space for the people who, who know the work better and who have the energy and the, and the talent to do what not only the time, but what the work needs it to do. And when I, the last organization that I was running, it was time for younger people to lead it. You know, it was time for me to take a more of a supportive role to support them in their leadership um, because they knew what they were doing. They knew what they were doing more so than me. And I took it as far as I could. And, and I knew that they were going to take it further. So my career has been a, a testament to really being aligned, feeling like, okay, I'm in community at the right time, using my superpower for a particular time. And then using that time to make as much space possible for the next crew of people to come in and take that, that work forward while I take a step back. Mm -hmm. So taking this more coaching and, and strategy role specifically for folks who are leading different organizations, it was one, because I had done the, I had led an organization and, is a, and it is a very isolating place um, where a lot of folks don't have support and usually you're left with more questions than answers. And because I had served in certain roles and because of my background, I felt that I could be helpful. And also, I believe that you create from who you are. So we've been socialized to think that you can be, you know, a crappy person and be this amazing leader. That's fundamentally not true. Or you can be you know, a crappy person and you can just run this organization so amazingly. I, I don't think that's true. I think when we're whole people, when we're reflective people, when we are striving to understand ourselves and the world around us as individuals, that shows up in how we lead and how we transform and innovate organizations. And when I think about, again, changing material conditions, of black folks and brown folks and women and young folks, we're working at these organizations. We're working in these state governments. We're working in these nonprofits. We're working in these corporations. And a lot of the harm that we experience are based on the in, in these different institutions that we are interacting in. And if I can provide support and strategy through working with leaders to do their own reflection to start to understand and understand themselves, I've seen that completely change the way organizations function. 
and how they show up and what their policies are and thus the experience of people who have to interact with them. So for me, it was not necessarily because I thought I was, you know, the smartest or the coolest or all of that. It's just, we all have to take inventory of our superpowers. We all have to take inventory of, okay, how can I, how can I add value, but not just as an individual in community. So mm, mm, I love that. Take inventory of our superpowers. It's fantastic. And you, you certainly have a superpower. Um, I, I have felt, I have felt your forces. Um, <laughs> and what, what I'd love for you to reflect on is, you know, as you think about this past year and, and, and before that, I mean, working with so many companies and leaders, where did you really see those breakthrough moments? Um, you know, is there, you know, are there any examples that you could talk about where you've seen people really make breakthrough change in this area that gives you hope? You, you sort of alluded to that at the beginning of the conversation. Yeah, I, you know, Funny enough, you asked me a question about, you know, um, President Biden going down to Tulsa and, you know, how did I feel about that? And I, I said, I think it's great. And, you know, how are we changing the, you know, the material conditions of the folks who are still um, not only being victimized in, in Tulsa, but don't have access because of this horror? I remember particularly one client and their organization put put out a, you know, we, you know, we stand with black people um, letter to their, to their staff. And my question to their CEO was, but uh, what's the experience of your black staff? And she, she at first didn't understand my question, but my, my challenge to her was, it's amazing that your organization is putting out that you stand with Black Lives Matter and what happened to George Floyd and Tony McDade and all and, and the names that we know that we don't know are not okay and this organization does not stand for it. That's amazing. And if you really support Black lives, how are the Black lives treated at your organization? And I remember asking her that question and her pause <laughs> and, you know, us talking about it for the next couple of weeks. And that went on to us having me giving her some radical reflection questions to think about her own relationship to black people and blackness and her own experience with oppression and her own experience understanding, you know, her participation in things that she's seen. And that then changed the, to the organization really doing work to say, oh snap, like it's great that we are, you know, leading one of the first people to put out these statements and, and folks are looking to us and using our stuff as a, as a template. But what's actually most important to us is that the folks who work here and the folks that we support to feel supported, not for our, our partner organizations or corporations to think that we're cool or to think that we're on trend or to think that we are, are relevant What's most important to us is the folks who work here every day to feel like we see them. And that turned into um, different policy changes. It turned into um, conversations and, and strategy sessions about changing the way the infrastructure of the organization, because once she was able to ask that question and bring it back to her team, you know, 
the experiences of black folks at her organization weren't weren't good. So I, I think for me, some of the evolution, as I, as I mentioned, again, was from that first point of personal transformation and reflection, and then using that as a, as a runway, as a blueprint to do that personal reflection and interrogation of the organization. And those are some of the conversations that prior to 2020, I wasn't able to have with clients. I remember in 2016, when I was talking to organizations about, you know, they, they wanted to bring me in to do DEI strategy. And I'm like, that's great but we need to be talking about the root of why this exists, why we don't have diversity, why we don't have equity, why we don't have inclusion, particularly in this country, and that's white supremacy. And I remember having clients say, oh no, we can't say that, oh no, or shuddering at that word. Fast forward, you know, fast forwarding to 2020, and I find more of my clients are willing to have that conversation and do some of that reflection. So. Again, I think the, the, the changes that I've been able to see in organizations have started from leaders being willing to lean in and do their own reflection, which in turn has transformed the organizations that they serve right now. Mm. And how do you find working with, um, working in the environment with the shift of administrations, right? In some ways, you know, uh, because we know that so many of the policies of the Trump administration were, you know, adding fuel to the fire, right? I mean, just that is a very maybe sort of mild way of putting it. And so there was almost, you know, something to rise up against, right? And I don't, you know, just mean for black and brown communities, but really for, you know, let's say progressives to rise up against. Mm -hmm. But now that you know we have a new administration, we have the first woman, first African American, Asian American female vice president. Is it more difficult because now we have you know someone in such a prominent position? You know, is it more difficult to sort of galvanize that that sort of uprising, or is it easier? You know, I'm just curious from your from your perspective. It depends on who we're talking about. For folks who, you know, are at the expense of oppression, our conversations haven't changed, right? It hadn't changed from Obama to Trump to, you know, to, to, to Biden, because again, the material conditions of folks who are being oppressed in this country don't, hasn't shifted that much, unfortunately. Um, but I do think the folks who, it has been more difficult to galvanize are the people who practice performative solidarity, are the progressives, are the people who are, you know, who are more interested in their mind. Of course, they, of course it's like do the right thing, but that right thing is the post, is the tweet, is the, is the statement. It's not the how am I actually an active participant in this? How is you know, the power that I hold actually being used to oppress this group of people? I think those are the folks that have, that have been a, a lot more difficult to organize because the North Star for them was removing one person from office. Mm. Because for us, for, for folks who are, who are black, who are brown, who are you know, a part of different marginalized identities, Trump was not, there have been Trumps in the White House since the beginning of this country. 
Trump is not the, um, he's a symptom of a much larger issue. And that issue is white supremacy. That issue is colonialism. That issue is imperialism. That issue is a lack of real reckoning with the real founding of this country. And you see it now, we have a completely different administration, but states are still acting in the same way. It is wild that any state would say, our state is going to ban critical race theory. Like what, <laughs> if you understand the construction of this country and how it was in fact built on the construction of race, creating a hierarchy between people, now you are saying it is illegal to talk about our real history. Mm. Mm. That, that's, that's literally what's happening. So the difficult folks to organize are the people who were more focused on the symptom, which was a, a Trump, which was a whoever, instead of focusing on how can we dismantle the root of this, which will pop up and create a new whoever. Mm -hmm. And we can see that, you know, there was a lot of backlash with Vice President Harris, what happened, you know, what she said in Guatemala, right? Right. Someone who is a daughter of folks who immigrated to this country, it is wild to say to immigrants don't come here who are fleeing an unstable, uh, unstable quote unquote country because of American politics. Yeah. That's wild. But but again, we don't have access, we, we don't have access to, and the conversation is talking about the symptom, why are people coming to this country, quote unquote, illegally, instead of the root of why is this country unstable in the first place? And what was our role in it? Hmm. Hmm. It's the same thing. Hmm. I think that is, that's the difficult part that we faced. I think what I would love to, what I'm inviting people to join us on, the journey is, let's dig at the root together. If we, we fundamentally want a country where a holiday like Juneteenth is celebrated federally, if we want a country where, you know, regardless of your genders, your race, your sexual orientation, your, your any status to live a life where you can frolic and be, we have to dig at the root. Yeah, and I have to say, I think by by casting, you know, there's that group of people over there, and then there's us over here, right? It it sets up a dynamic that we don't have to do the work, right? If you are a progressive, if you've dedicated your life to human rights issues or environmental issues. Well, I'm on the right side of history. I don't have the work to do, right? Whereas really we all do because we're all part of the system. But I think it's been interesting to me to see how much, you know, those who would maybe even call themselves woke, are <laughs> holding their hands up and say, oh, but it's not me. It's those exactly. people over there. And it's, a, it's such a dangerous dynamic because obviously we aren't going to change if we're not changing ourselves first. Absolutely. And it also absolves the opportunity to, to fundamentally create something more beautiful. Yeah. The thing about one of my really good friends who I often sit at the feet of, sit at the feet of because she's brilliant. Her name is Sherelle Brown. 
She's an organizer and professor in Atlanta. She said to me once, you know, patriarchy doesn't need a man around for it to work. Mm. White supremacy doesn't need a white person around for it to work. When we think about all of the different isms, as I would say, or, or systems of oppression, you don't need the privileged group around because we all buy into it. We keep it going. And what happens when we say, it's not me, I'm good, that inhibits our ability from really divesting from it to change it. So when we are in these situations where it's like, oh, well, I would never say that, or that's not me, like the insurgents in January 6th, oh, that was totally not me. I cannot believe they did that. It, it, it impedes on our ability to say, wait, well, how did I enable this in my own community? Or how, how did I enable this by maybe not checking my cousin or checking my auntie or checking my whoever? How did I enable this by not making sure that I'm having conversations about Juneteenth or having conversations about how the political process works in my home? Whatever. We all, it is, white supremacy is not our fault, but it is our job to divest from it. And until every single person, one, acknowledges that we have all inhaled this smog, and two, make conscious everyday decisions to divest from it and then choose to do something different, we are going to be in the same cycle. We are in two, 2021, and I want us to consider for a moment that in 2021, there is no anti-lynching legislation federally. That is wild. Wow. In 2021. Mm. And, and, and it's easy to be like, well, how is this? Why is this? Why is it? Because all of us, our legislators, locally, in our state, federally, if they have them, because we know that some, you know, that our territories don't have that representation, have not said, okay, I see this thing and we are all collectively going to take everyday actions to divest from this thing and then reinvest somewhere else. So I know you, you, you will say it's not about a day, but let's start with Juneteenth as because <laughs> it's about every day. Yeah. But um, what are ways that people can utilize the day? I know at Vital Voices, for example, we have Friday the 18th as a holiday and acknowledgement of, and certainly are encouraging people to be informed, volunteer, take action. But from your perspective, what would you encourage people to do on that day? Yeah, for me, Juneteenth signifies none of us are free until all of us are free. And it is my annual reminder to ask myself, who isn't free yet? And how am I showing up for them? Here in DC, Nelly's Sports Bar, I don't know if y'all know about Nelly's. It is the turn up place. And it is, you know, has been the LGBTQIA plus bar in DC for a very long time. Two days ago, one of the security guards dragged a queer black woman out by her hair um, out of a sports bar. And there's been a lot of protests since. 
And that for me is another reminder, like all of us are still not free. When I think about black trans women, when I think about black queer folks, when I think about indigenous women, when I think about all of the folks who are not free yet, that, that is what I'm thinking about on Juneteenth. And I'm also thinking about how awesome and swaggy and resilient my ancestors were. And I bring that to you all in terms of my own personal reflections of how I think about the holiday because Juneteenth should signify for this country Freedom Day. It is not July 4th. <laughs> it is, you know, June 19th. It is, it is American Freedom Day. And I would challenge everyone not only to just research about the day and, and ask questions like, why the hell did it take two and a half years later for the word to get down to Galveston, Texas, and how strategic it was in terms of what season and all of those things. Ask all of those why questions. Ask those why questions in community, right? Ask them with your family, ask them at your dinner table. Um, and also ask yourself, who isn't free yet? Like who, who are we leaving behind? Who am I leaving behind? I'm sure, unfortunately, when I walk down my street, I see folks who are experiencing homelessness, right? When I walk down my street, I see folks who don't have access to certain things. And the question that I'm always challenging and asking myself, of course, you know, you show up in the, in the ways that you can is, what do we need to do? My, my local community, my state community, my federal community to make sure those folks aren't left behind. And it is by those reflective, those radical reflection questions that we can not only just commemorate a day because we want a, you know, a day off for work that we drink a lot because I will be doing all of that for sure. But a day that challenges us to do better by understanding our history and doing better is, wow, the Emancipation Proclamation was created in 1863, I think it was. And wait, these folks weren't notified until two and a half years later? What? That's not okay. Mm. How can we use this day to memorialize, let's do better? Let's not leave anyone behind anymore, you know? Mm. Mm. That is exactly what I'm going to tell my children on the 19th. You know, I feel like I, I'm always, you know, pulling the tools to communicate these things because quite honestly, Susie, you know, I grew up with amazing parents, amazing family, but I think that I thought for the longest time, oh, I grew up colorblind, I'm colorblind, right? And we all know that that just simply doesn't exist in a world and a culture ruled by white supremacy. You cannot be colorblind. And so I, over this past year, have made a real commitment to really talk to my kids about these issues, even though they're so young, Right. And, you know, I, you know, even when it comes to women's rights, I waited for a while before I talked to my daughter about it because I didn't want her to think somehow she's less than, you know, because some people in the world still think that. Um, and so it's a it's a it's a it's a careful dance, but you begin to realize that it will be it will become known because of the world in which they are growing up in and what they're seeing on the news, they pick things up. So if I don't frame it for them and hit it head on, um, 
they're going to create their own perceptions. Um, so, and that's, that's definitely something I feel like I have taken from our many, many, many conversations. And I could, I could spend the rest of the evening chatting with you, <laughs> but uh, as, as we often do, but um, maybe just one more question. Uh, yeah. And that's, what is your power? How do you use it to empower? Ooh, what is my power? You talked about your superpower. I mean, I have so many. I'm not even going to lie to you. One of the things about, (laughs) I don't know about everybody, but I know for sure about Black women, we have a lot, a lot of superpowers. But I would say the one that I'm really stepping into as of late is a frolic facilitator. And I know you're like, what the heck is a frolic facilitator? So I think that it is a huge part of my life's purpose to frolic y'all. And I know you're probably like, this lady is wild. What do you mean frolic? You said frolic earlier and I'm like, frolic. I like it. I imagined you frolicking. Exactly. It was good. You were dancing and fancy stuff and on. (laughs) And you already know, right? To dance, to play, to just to be. And I fundamentally think equal part of my purpose is to encourage other folks to do that by collectively dismantling the things that get in our way from doing so. Mm. And I think for me, it's a, my superpower is really challenging us to, to unlearn the way that we've been socialized, to think that we have to work to deserve, to deserve things that are rights. We deserve to play. We deserve housing. We deserve clean water. We deserve to love whoever the hell we want to love. We, de- we deserve all of those things, right? We deserve to be, to step into the fullness of who we are. But there are so many things that are man-made, by the way, that get in our way from just being who the hell we are. And I think my superpower that I'm really stepping into is, is frolicking, y'all. Just frolicking, being, creating as much joy as possible while doing this work that can be very tough and very taxing. So yeah, I empower people to frolic. That's what I do. (laughs) I love it. I love it. it. Well, thank you so much, Cece. I so deeply appreciate the time, your power, um, and all the empowering that that you have done and will continue to do, so thank you. Thank you so much for having me and thank y'all for listening. Thanks for listening to this special edition of the Vital Voices podcast. If you'd like to support our work with women leaders who use their power to empower others, you can donate to Vital Voices on our website at vitalvoices.org, or you can text VITAL to 41444. That's VITAL to 41444. See you next week.